I invite you to open your Bible to to Psalm first to Psalm 91. We'll be reading our text will be from verses 9 through 16. And then we will be reading from Luke chapter 4, verses 9 through 13. As we just read from both the Psalms and the Gospels. This evening I will also be preaching from the Psalm and the Gospel. So we'll be focusing on Luke 4, Jesus' temptation by Satan. But we'll also be reading from Psalm 91 as the context for why, what the connection between Psalm 91 and Luke chapter 4. Because this, and because Satan and he tempted Jesus, quoted Psalm 91. So it's my purpose that we can see that even in this Psalm quoted by Satan, we see Jesus clearly. We see Jesus gloriously. And we, our peace, are known as lovers of Psalms. But why do we love Psalms? Because Psalms point us to Jesus Christ. Because we love Jesus Christ. And that's the reason we love Psalms. So I hope that I will point you to Jesus Christ through this Psalm and also through the Gospel. So now, I will first be reading Psalm 91. We will not be reading the whole so Psalm. We, we already sent the first uh, portion, but we will be reading uh, the next verses 9 through 16. So God's people, hear God's word. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is your refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast, because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him, because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Now please turn to Luke chapter 4. I will be reading verses 9 through 13. And the devil took Jesus to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bail you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, And it said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him 
until an opportune time. So now let us pray and ask God to bless his word. O oh Lord God, your word is living and active. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. Now use your sword to pierce our soul and spirit, to expose the thoughts and intentions of our heart. But also use your word to strengthen us, to equip us with the sword of your spirit, that we may be able to resist the temptations of the devil, as our Lord has done. And we pray this in his name. Amen. I wonder how many of you have ever watched a fencing match. When I was a child and watched the Olympic Games for the first time, I was really excited about the fencing matches because fencing looked so cool to me. It fulfilled a boy's dream to be a knight, to be a hero. But after watching two or three matches, I got tired of them. I just realized I couldn't enjoy those matches. Why? It's not because the rules of fencing are complicated. On the contrary, the rules are pretty simple. Whoever hits the opponent first wins the match. But the problem with me is that my eyes couldn't follow the movement, the lightning quick maneuvers of the fencers. Everything happened so fast that I couldn't make sense of what's going on. In a blink of eyes, the hit was made, the battle was over, and I was at a loss. And this is what happened in Luke chapter 4, in the encounter between Jesus and Satan. Here is a duel between the two best fencers of all time, between the prince of peace and the prince of the world between the great savior and the great destroyer. And especially the passage we just read, in this third temptation, in verses 9 and 3, we see a close combat between Satan and Jesus. This temptation was recorded to the third, uh, second temptation in, in Matthew. So it doesn't have to be, these temptations didn't have to happen in a chronological order. But I believe that Luke played this temptation at the last one because he saw this as the most intense temptation. Because in this temptation, Satan quoted scripture to tempt Jesus. Satan drew the sword of the evil spirit to launch his attack on Jesus. And Jesus responded with God's word. He wielded the sword of the spirit to block Satan's attack. So in this way, Jesus resisted the devil and won the battle. And that's why verse 14 says, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. The devil realized that he couldn't win this duel, so he retreated, and he must find another way 
to defeat Jesus. And at first sight, there was this was a rather unspectacular duel. No cut was made, no blood was shed, nothing extraordinary happened, no miracles happened, and you would almost think that Satan was going too easy on Jesus. But if this how you think of this battle between Jesus and Satan, then show that you are reading this passage, you are seeing this comeback in the same way as I watched a fencing match. You have no clue what was happening on the stage. You have no idea how intense the duel was, how malicious the devil was, and how close he was at piercing Jesus' heart. That's why we need to replay this duel in slow motion, to analyze the intention of every movement made by both fencers. So the first question we should ask about this duel is this. Why did Satan quote from Psalm 91? Why did he say to Jesus, For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hand they will bail you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Why this psalm? Why these verses? Were these the only verses he could memorize from the scriptures? Or did he randomly pick these verses from the Bible? Did he arbitrarily pick a sword from his armory to launch his attack on Jesus? I'm afraid that the devil knows the, know the Bible way better than any of us. And he is extremely shrewd and skilled to twist the word of God to achieve his purpose or his advantage. Many commentators accuse Satan quoting these verses out of context, as we ourselves often do with the Bible. But again, I'm afraid that they underestimate the depth of Satan's darkness, the malice of his evil scheme. For the context of these verses, for the exact reason why Satan was quoting them. For Satan knew the context so well that he used these verses to take his best chance to try to pierce Jesus' heart. For what is the verse that comes right after the verses he quoted? He quoted from Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. And the verse 13 of this psalm says, You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent, you will trample underfoot. Now who is that lion mentioned here? If it's not the lion that appears in First Peter 5, I will adversary the devil who prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And who is that serpent mentioned here? If it's not the serpent that appears in Revelation 12, the great dragon, the ancient serpent, 
who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And who else could it be that Victor mentioned here, who will tread upon the lion and the serpent, who will trample them under foot? But Jesus, the Son of God, who became the Son of Man, the siege of the woman, who has come to fulfill the great promise of Genesis 3.15. I will put an enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Brothers and sisters, now can you understand why Satan quotes Psalm 91? Throughout the Old Testament, Genesis 3.15 and Psalm 91.13 are the two verses that Satan hates the most and fears the most. He dared not to mention these verses directly, but he was shrewd and evil enough to quote Psalm 91 verses 11 12 to launch his attack on Jesus. He's saying to Jesus, if you are the Son of God, if you have come to tread on me and crush my head, then you need to prove yourself. You must demonstrate your power. You must fulfill this song. So throw yourself down from here and see if the angels would indeed come to save you, to bear you up in their hands. So this is how Satan tempted Jesus. And this is also Satan will tempt you. People of God, do you know that Satan hates you and fears you as much as he hates Jesus? And do you know why? Because of Luke 10, verse 19, in which Jesus said to his disciples, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. And also because of Romans 16:20, in which Apostle Paul assures us, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Satan knew that Jesus came to crush his head. Satan knew that now you have the power to trample him under your feet. But he doesn't want you, wants you to believe so. And so, because you also have the authority to tread on him, because you are more than conquerors in all things through Jesus Christ, Satan wants you to doubt your authority, to doubt your identity. So Satan may challenge you as he challenged Jesus. He may launch his attack on you just as he did to Jesus. He may say to you, if you are more than the conquerors, was he still subject to the passion of your flesh? If you have authority to tread on me, why do you so often fall into the temptations that come from me? 
Shorty, you are not a conqueror, but a, but a miserable loser. You are lying under my feet, bound on my chains. This is Satan's lies. But how would you respond to this challenge? How would you fight against this attack? Indeed, if you look to yourself, if you realize how sinful, how corrupt you are, and how, how weak, how frail your faith is, you may believe, Satan, you say, yes, I don't think I can conquer you. I don't think I can resist your temptation. But people of God, you need to look away from your works, and you need to look to the work of Jesus. And you need to hold fast to the word of God. And you must not let Satan's word make you waver concerning the promise of God. But you need to be fully convinced that God is able to do what he has promised. You may not know how God will fulfill his promises. You may not know how he will make you pure, holy, and blameless. Because you now just feel so filthy, so weak, and so blemished. You may not know how God will make you a conqueror over sin and devil. We often feel that you are one who is being conquered by Satan, by your sin. And you may not know how God will make you trample Satan and crush his head. Because you may often feel that Satan the one who is holding your arms, who is controlling your desires. You may not know the answers to these questions, but at least you can be sure that God will keep his promise. God will make you a conqueror over all things. God will make you tread on Satan. Indeed, God has given you the authority to resist every temptation. God has given you the power to, to ask the Satan to run away from. For God who calls you is faithful, and he will surely do it. And now, let's come to the second question about this duel between Satan and Jesus. That is, why did Satan lead Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple? And why did he try to tempt Jesus to throw himself down? Was he so naive to believe that with a few words he would persuade Jesus to take his bait, to fall into his trap, to take his own life? You can be certain that the devil is more cunning than you think, and his scheme is more wicked than you can imagine. I gave you my testimony this morning. Some of you, some of you heard it, some of you, some of you didn't. But all you need to know that there was one point in my life before I became a Christian when I so despaired of life that I decided to commit suicide. So one night I went up to the top, the roof of my apartment building, and I was ready to throw myself down. But when I saw the dark abyss beneath me, when I Picture death as a bottomless pit. 
I trembled. I hesitated. I was not sure if I really had the courage to die. And I wonder how Jesus felt when he was standing on the pinnacle of the temple, when the devil whispered to his ear, "If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here." You know these words were rather suggestive. Perhaps Satan was reminding Jesus of where he used to belong. Were you not the Son of God, who used to live in the dwelling place of the Most High? But now look at where you are. Now you have fallen from heaven, you have descended into the world, and you are lying under my power. You are exposed to my attack. But more likely, Satan was pointing Jesus to what would happen to him. Right outside of Jerusalem, at the hill of Calvary, Jesus would deliver himself into the hand of men. Jesus would lay down his life on the cross. Jesus would throw himself down into the pit of death. Satan knew that Jesus came to die on the cross. Jesus knew that he came to die on the cross. But do you see how wicked Satan is? For at this very beginning of Jesus' public ministry, the devil wanted to show Jesus the very end of his ministry, the horrible prospect of the cursed death on the cross. That's why he took Jesus to the top of the temple. He wanted to point Jesus to the cross. And he was telling him, do you really want to go there? Or do you, how about you just die here? So Satan wanted Jesus to despair of his life, to give up his ministry, to run away from the cross. And he was seducing Jesus to make a choice. He was offering Jesus a way of escape from the cross. He's telling Jesus which way is easier, which pain is more unbearable, which end is less humiliating. Do you want to throw yourself down from here now, or do you want to lay down your life on the cross at the end? Brothers and sisters, maybe the devil is also tempting you to run away from your cross and your suffering. He's tempting you to forsake your life. Maybe you are troubled by the feelings of emptiness and loneliness, or maybe you are overwhelmed by the burden of your work and life. Maybe you are groaning because of the weaknesses of your body. So that you would rather die than continue your life on earth, as Satan did to me. He's pointing me to the end. He says, "There's no hope at the end. Then why don't you just end your life at this moment?" But look to Jesus. For Jesus is able to sympathize with your weaknesses, for He has been tempted in 
every respect just as you are. For he is the one who has faced the strongest temptation of suicide. If I have to pick between cross and suicide, of course I will choose suicide. But Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, he didn't run away from the cross. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. He endured the cross. He despised the shame. And he is now seated at the right hand of God the Father. Yes, he came down into the world. He went down to Sheol. He descended into the depth of death. So for it seems that his, all, all of his ministry is down, down, down. He kept making the trajectory downside. But when he reached the bottom end, he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. And from there he threw Satan down to the earth. He threw him into the bottomless pit. And he will throw the devil into the lake of fire where he will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So brothers and sisters, when you are considering your current pain and sorrow, struggle and despair, focus on what God is preparing you for in the future. For Jesus will lift you up into his glorious presence. He will receive you into his heavenly kingdom. Well, you shall enjoy eternal life and everlasting joy. Because he himself has suffered when tempted. He has helped you. He is able to help you whenever you are being tempted by Satan. Brothers and sisters, I want you to know that even after I became a Christian, the suicidal thought would still revisit me, would still hang over my mind from time to time. And whenever I, I faced struggles, problems, difficulties, I would often think, oh, why should I, should I not go back to the top of the building to end my life? But what has kept my life to this very day is not my sense of responsibility to my family. It's not my, my care about people's opinion on me. But what has really restrained me from suicide is the word of Jesus that saved my life on the very night. I am the resurrection and the life. And I have to remind me, remind myself, because Jesus has died for me, I don't need to die. And because Jesus has come back to life, I should live forever in him. So brothers and sisters, no matter what the devil says to you, no matter how difficult your life be, don't, don't lose hope. But look to Jesus. Listen to him. And know that in Jesus, you have abundant hope. And in Jesus, you have everlasting joy. 
Now we have come to the last question concerning this great battle between Jesus and Satan. Why did Jesus respond to Satan's attack with this particular verse from Deuteronomy 6? Why did Jesus answer Satan? It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You may think Jesus could come up with other ways to, to answer Satan, to rebuke Satan. But instead, he, he chose to answer Satan this, with this verse. Why? Because Jesus has seen through the scheme of the devil. Because Jesus recognized that Satan's real target was not to challenge his divinity. Satan's real purpose was not to take his life. But he had a hidden agenda. That is to set the son against the father. To make the son question the love of the father. To tempt the son to put the father to the test. For the actual temptation that Satan presented to Jesus is like this. If you, are the son of, if you are the son of God, if the Father really loves you and cares for you, why would he allow you to suffer in the world, to die on the cross? If God has promised that you will not strike your foot against stone, why would he allow me to tempt you and attack you, to strike your foot and to bruise your heel? So throw yourself down from here and to prove that God loves you and cares for you. And he will indeed keep his promise and save your life. Brothers and sisters, have you ever questioned the love of God for you? Have you ever said to God, if you really love me, why do you allow this terrible thing to happen to me? Or if you really care for me, why do you withhold this very good one for blessing from me? Don't you know what I want, what I need, or don't you know what I'm afraid of? But you need to be watchful, brothers and sisters. Satan is seeking every opportunity, using every means to make you doubt if God really loves you, cares for you. This is Satan's real purpose. He doesn't care whether you will live in prosperity or in distress. But he what really hates is that you trust God and you really believe that God loves you. And that's what he did to Adam and Eve when he tempted them to eat the forbidden fruit. He wanted them to doubt whether God really loved them. If God really loved them, why would God forbid them from eating that fruit on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And that's also what he did to Job when he took away every good thing he had received from God. He wanted Job to question God's love. How could God let these things happen to me? And that's also what he did to Jesus. When he tempted him to throw himself down from the pinnacle of the temple. 
And that's what he might be tempting you. And you must be on guard. Well, brothers and sisters, do you really need more evidence of God's love when God has sent his son to die on your behalf, to die on the cross, to die the most shameful and cursed and a painful death? What does the Bible say about the love of God? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Oh, brothers and sisters, the Bible doesn't say that if God loves us, he will give us what we want. The Bible tells us again, again, that because God so loved us, that he sends his son to die for us. And this is the greatest expression of his love for us. And there's no greater way for, he, for him to tell us how much he loves us, how much he cares for us. The eternal Son of God died for you. Is this still not enough for you? I think every parent may have this experience. You have loved your children with so much. You are willing to sacrifice everything for their good, for their well-being. But when they couldn't get one single candy from you, all of a sudden they get frustrated, they got angry with you, that you didn't love me. And my child did the same thing to me, and it hurt my heart. How could you say this to me after so much I have done for you? But feel, imagine how God would be feeling when he has given all he could have given you. When he had given up his own, his only son for you, and you are still complaining. You don't love me, God. You don't love me. So people of God, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Do not question the love of your heavenly Father. But even as your life falls to pieces, and the ruins, even as your day becomes as dark as night, even as you have been stripped of all wealth and fame, you may still hold fast to God's love. You may still proclaim the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great as your faithfulness. So Satan quoted Psalm 91 to achieve, to, to achieve his three purposes. He quoted this Psalm to challenge Jesus' identity as the Son of God. He quoted this Psalm to make Jesus despair of his life, to give up his ministry. And he quoted this Psalm to tempt Jesus to question the love of his Father, to, to put the Father to the test. But I believe that the fundamental reason why Satan quoted 
is some to attack Jesus. It's because he knew, he knew that this psalm was very special to Jesus. This psalm was written by the Father to his son to give him courage and strength in time of the greatest need. Look at verses 14 through 16 of Psalm 91. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Often we think the Psalms are written for us. But we need to realize the primary reason of Psalm is that it is written by the Father to his Son to prepare him for earthly ministry, for the suffering he would face and encounter. And the verses we just read are the precious promises that the God the Father gave his beloved Son as he was about to enter his earthly ministry. And the Father wrote this letter to his Son because he wanted to assure the Son of his never-changing love. He wanted to use these words to prepare him for the most terrible suffering he was going to endure. As a parent, as a father or mother, if you know that your child is going to face great difficulty, great trouble in their life, you would want to write a letter to to assure him of he of God's love. And you want to tell them, convince them that no matter what happens, that you will love them with an ever changing a never changing love. And that's what God the Father said to the Son. But can you picture that when Jesus was on the cross, when he was crying, my God, oh my God, why have you forsaken me? And when he called the Father, and the Father didn't answer him. And when the trouble comes, there was no one to help him. Indeed, when the Father laid our iniquities upon him, when the Father poured his wrath upon him, when what was happening to him was totally opposite to what the Father had prospered him, when Satan came back to tempt him, to ask him, to tempt him to give up his hope in God and save himself by coming down from the cross, at that moment, Jesus was really in a crisis. He, was, he has every reason to doubt whether the love the Father truly cared about him, loved him. But even then, Jesus still held fast to the Father in love, even up to the point of death. And he said with his last breath, Father, into your hands 
I connect my spirit. And at that moment, Jesus did throw himself down. He jumped into the bottomless pit, the darkest abyss. And the Father did come to rescue him according to his promise, to raise him from the dead, to set him at his right hand, and to honor him with a name that is above every name. So Jesus, even at his most de desperate moment, still held fast to God in love. And God did manifest his love for Jesus. And the people of God, children of God, of God, of the Father, has fulfilled his promises to Jesus Christ. How much more he will keep his promise to us because now he accepts us as precious as he accepts Jesus Christ. So now, trust in God. Then listen to Satan, but hold fast to the love of God the Father, even in your darkest hour, even in your most difficult moment. Let us pray. God our Father, what a great love you have shown toward us, that even when we were dead in our trespasses, you made us alive together with Christ and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Who can measure the breadth and the length and the height and depth of your love? And who is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord? O oh Lord, our Father, let us never fall into the temptation to test your love, to question love, to doubt your love, but enable us to hold fast to you in love, even in our trials and suffering, even in the face of death, as our Lord Jesus did when he was on the cross. Pray this in his name. Amen.